1: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Sports, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of today's interview. Ordinarily, I'm the host of another channel on the New Books Network, New Books and Genocide Studies. But occasionally, I pinch hit on New Books and Sports, especially with books that look at women's sports. It was in that role, uh, as somebody with an academic interest in women's sports, that I watched the recent World Cup soccer tournament won by a dynamic U.S. team led by Megan Rapino and Alex Morgan. Uh, and as I watched that, I remembered watching the 1999 World Cup, also won by the U.S., uh, and, and, a, and a sporting event that had a similar kind of cultural impact. And so I was fascinated to watch not just the games themselves, but, but the media coverage of the World Cup, the commercials uh, that aired uh, during commercial breaks, the pre-game and post-game coverage of, of the event. Uh, and I was struck by the way women's sports, or at least a women's sport, had become an event, uh, both culturally and economically, uh, in a way that, that really did not exist when I was growing up. So it seemed the right time to invite Andrea Guerin and Nancy Lowe to the show, Uh, They're the editors of a fantastic new collection of essays titled The Routledge Handbook of the Business of Women's Sports. Uh, The book has 41 essays and and about 70 contributors, and it's a truly global look at the state of women's sports in 2019. It's a book I learned a lot from, and I'm thrilled to have them both on the show today. So with that, Andrea and Nancy, welcome, and thanks for joining us in New Books in Sports.
2: Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for inviting us to do this, Kelly.
1: So we always start the interview by by giving us you all a chance to um to tell us a little bit about yourselves, about how you became interested in um uh the the subject of, of sports and business and, and women's sports in particular, and also about how you decided to become uh to pursue this interest from an academic perspective. So so Andrea, why don't we start with you first? Uh tell the listeners a little bit about yourself.
0: Okay. Um Well, I am currently in a position as a reader at Loughborough University in London, and I have spent my academic career um, serving in faculty roles at different universities around the world, um, several in the United States, in New Zealand, Australia, and now the UK. Um, I've been interested in sports for as long as I can remember. Um, I was a gymnast growing up and a distance runner, and I still do um, distance running just k- kind of for fun, um, you know, doing marathons and half marathons and things like that. And I think that I really became interested in especially women's sport um, just because I have been a woman in sport. And I know mm-hmm. probably Nancy has some, some similar experiences, but just growing up, there were things I saw where I thought, um, you know, there was why do the, why do the boys get to do this and the girls don't? And so I saw inequities, um, just as a young person. And so I think growing up, I've always been of the mindset to sort of champion women's sport and try to get women on a more level playing field with men. Um, and I decided to become an academic because I've always just had this this strong curiosity um, for new knowledge. And I think if I look back at even the things I did as a child, I was always researching. And so, researching mm-hmm. is something that I find to be incredibly fun. Um, and you know, just being able to find out new things that we don't already know—that's um, very exciting to me. So, I think even though I didn't grow up thinking I would become an academic. um, If I look back at my life, that that's kind of been the track that I was on.
1: And Nancy, how about you?
0: Well, right
2: now I am a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and I've, uh, like Andrea, been at a number of different universities although mine have all been in the U.S. I haven't had the privilege of traveling to multiple universities um, across the world like she has. Um, But my actual career path started as a coach. I was a scholarship student athlete in cross-country and track and field when it was actually somewhat new for um, women to have the opportunity to be a scholarship Mm -hmm. athlete. And I went from that experience to... Um, having aspirations of being an Olympic coach, because my coach was an Olympic level coach. And so I coached a short time at, at the high school level, moved on to the college level pretty quickly, which was where I really aspired to be. And again, within a relatively short amount of time, experienced some serious gender inequities that I was really unprepared for. I had been treated very well as a student athlete and had not really been exposed to gender discrimination. That I started to see when I was coaching. And the way that my athletes were being treated, I honestly um, just had a a morally difficult time rectifying the leadership that I was working under. Um, It was more than just discrimination. We're now in the Me Too era, so we know that there's a lot of things that um, have happened to women athletes. And some of those were things that I witnessed. And so I, at that point in time, decided that, A, it was very unlikely that I was ever going to be a head coach of a combined men's and women's track and field team. Mm-hmm. Because to this day, there's only five at the Division I level. Um, and B, if I was going to make any change, the best way was going to be through educating and uh, doing research to shine a light on the kinds of um, experiences that I had. And quite honestly, I didn't even know about Title IX until I started my doctoral program. So, you know, as athletes, as coaches, we really were not educated on gender equity or Title IX or any of that. Now, keep in mind, this was the early 90s. um, And I, to this day, teach that I really don't feel like Title IX took effect until 1992, which was the first um, landmark court case where, um, you know, punitive compensatory damages were awarded. And so all of a sudden, everybody started paying attention to this little law called Title IX. But by that time, I was actually in my doctoral program and doing research. The thing that happened, uh, Kelly, is somewhat similar to how you started the show. So ironic or not, I don't know. But in in the early 1990s, uh, the U.S. women's soccer team, was actually having some success and Nike took note and for the first time, sponsored them to do a world tour. And this is to my mind, what really led to gold medals, you know, and multiple gold medals in women's sport in the 1996 Olympic games. Of course it was it was dubbed the women's Olympic games as many have been since, um, but that spurred my curiosity as I was just learning about sport marketing and I thought, oh, okay. So here's this really cool opportunity that all of these folks that are sponsoring sport take advantage of if they just knew about it and so that was really where my research started and so i kind of bring together you know this notion of um gender inequity along with the notion of like this economic imperative that there's there's a value proposition here there's an opportunity here and unfortunately at this point in time this is this is like well into the 20 plus years of my career so i have to say that i'm i'm not pleased with the amount of progress that we've made but I'm certainly committed to continuing to push the envelope to make more
1: progress in women's sport. So I'm struck by both of your comments. Um, and here I think uh, your responses share uh, commonalities with responses I often get when I talk about guests with guests on my own show, about genocide studies in the sense that they are combining an academic focus um with maybe maybe advocacy is too much but certainly an interest uh in equity an interest in equity not in inequity um so i wonder as an academic how you how you think about that as you do your research uh nancy maybe you can go first how how do you balance those
2: well, as as I mentioned, Kelly, I've been doing this for what I consider a pretty long time. Um, some of the things that I've learned are that as scholars of women's sport, it is actually an imperative that we are uh, voicing the findings that we have that we are in some ways being advocates for women's sport quite simply because there aren't there, there's just so much um, I would say there's so many barriers, there's so many, ways that women's sport doesn't get what it deserves and in this case i'm talking about media i'm talking about marketing i'm Mm -hmm. talking about management governance all of it um you know i'm i'm incredibly mystified by the u.s soccer federation right now fighting (laughs) literally fighting against the u.s women's national team they hired Mm -hmm. two lobbying firms this past week uh, to try to lobby uh, against doing what's right, which is simply, you know, paying the women what they deserve when they have won on such a grand scale consistently. And it it boggles my mind, quite honestly. Um, I really don't understand the position that the U.S. Soccer Federation is taking. And yet it shines this really bright light on the reason why I would would say I'm an advocate and that I, through my education, am hoping to create more who will advocate for women's sport.
1: Andrew do you want to add
0: anything or Sure um, I think that you know going along with what Nancy said one of the things that we actually highlight in the book as well is that a lot of women's professional sport teams and leagues do not have the same um, the same resources as the men's and mm-hmm. so they aren't able to collect the same amount of data they aren't a lot, they're, they aren't able to devote as much Um, to marketing and to promoting and those types of things. And so I think as academics, it's partially our responsibility to help to do the research that highlights some of these Mm -hmm. areas that they can't actually do themselves. Um, And that's one of the things we can use our academic background to help women's sport in that way. I also think that um, one of the ways, I, I know you kind of asked about the balance, and I think something that I saw as a student in sport management classrooms when I was doing my master's degree and my PhD, um, is that there are a lot of classes out there um, in in universities where women's sport is never even mentioned. Um, When they're Mm -hmm. talking about topics like marketing or um, even organizational behavior, um, sociology, these types of things where women's sport kind of gets left out of the curriculum. And so that's been really important to me as an educator um, is to bring women's sport into every class I teach where we're not necessarily focusing the entire class on that. But if I give a, an example and it's from a men's sport, I'm going to give a relevant example that also deals with women's sport. And so I think that by mm-hmm. teaching today's sport management students about women's sport um, and making it something that is more normal, that, that that isn't just this outlier that we're going to talk about one day in the semester, um, I think that's going to help future sport management leaders and academics to um, really value women's sport and see the importance of it.
1: So you mentioned the book, Andrea. So so why don't you tell us about why you and Nancy decided to edit this book and, and what were your goals for the book?
0: Yeah, one of the kind of going along with what I just said, one of the big things that we noticed is that there was no book like this in existence. Um, there are a couple of books that, that do focus on women's sport, but nothing that was a really sort of comprehensive, um, book focusing on so many different topics. And I know that for Nancy and myself, we both, when we teach, we, we are going out and finding resources that talk about women's sport that we can share with our students. And our goal for this book was to have one resource that any person who's teaching a sport management class could go to and find a chapter that deals with their topic so that there's absolutely no reason to not include women's sport in a class and mm. so that's you know that was really our goal was to develop something that everyone could use um, so so we tried to cover every topic that would potentially be taught in universities um, that have a sport management or sport business program
1: Nancy I'm going to give you the really challenging question uh which is somehow to briefly um briefly summarize where you see women's sports to be at this point in time you talked about your your lengthy engagement with this subject so so how would you summarize to somebody who who didn't pay attention to women's sports what what the state of women's sports is now
2: Well, I'm very optimistic, actually, uh, especially after this summer and the attention Mm -hmm. that the media has provided for uh, the U.S. Women's National Team, but also the conversation around the WNBA right now and and the upticks in viewership and um, some of those areas that I would actually describe it right now as breaking through. I Mm -hmm. honestly believe that um, Women's Sport is starting to break through. Some of the mainstream um, mindsets of what sport is. You know, another great example that I'm sure Andrea was watching because she has that gymnastics background
0: is <laughs> what uh, Simone
2: just did this last mm-hmm. week. Um, you know, this absolutely phenomenal feat um, and setting yet again this incredibly high bar and standard for what a woman athlete or an athlete, quite honestly, an athlete can do. So between Serena Williams and what she's been doing um, at a level that, again, no one else has ever been able to attain. And then thinking about, you know, the, the attention that the women's national team got, having the fans actually cheering equal pay at the end of that match was just, again, a moment in time that is not just a reflection of the 1999 win, but a reflection of the progress that has been made over all of this time. So I honestly believe, and maybe it's because I'm I'm an advocate and I am um, someone who pays attention to women's sport, but I believe that women's sport is beginning to demand the attention of the media, of the public, of um, marketers, and those who can see the economic value that's there. And that's something that is new. It's something that hasn't really been present in, um, for a continuous period of time, you know, it's always been a blip on the radar. We're like, okay, when the Olympics come, everybody pays attention to women's sport because it gets a great deal of, um, interest, but then it falls off the radar screen. I'm hopeful that with this current situation, that what's been happening with multiple sports at this point in time, it's going to continue, and not just fall off our radar screen.
1: Andrea, do you want to? Is there anything you want to add or subtract, or?
0: Um, no, I think I think Nancy did a nice job summarizing that, um, and I I will say it is nice to see because in with Olympic sport, which is what the chapter that I wrote really deals with Olympic media coverage. Mm. Um, one of the big. Issues I think for sports that are primarily thought of as Olympic sports is that they don't receive much media coverage at all in those years in between Olympic Games. So to see so much coverage of Simone Biles and the the gymnastics, the US gymnastics competition this past weekend has been really encouraging because in previous years, um, those types of competitions might get the attention of the really sort of niche fans who follow it, but not the wider audiences. So I think that is a um, definitely an indication of a step in the right direction.
1: So sorry, leaving a space because I hear a dog, <laughs> and that's okay. Yes, I'm
2: so sorry, she. I have a puppy, and she just got <laughs> put in her crate. Um, Uh-oh. Can you hear I know. Can you hear it? Can I, do you need me to take a break and go put her somewhere else? Is uh, it,
1: I can hear it. Um, okay. I don't know. I don't know about Andrew, but if it's possible for you to do that, that would be great. And we can take a break. Um, okay.
2: Yeah. Let's take a quick break. And I'll okay. see if I can do that. Sure. Okay, thanks.
1: So Andrew, I have to say, um, this is the right place because I can imagine many other podcasts where you would have described distance running as fun, where people <laughs> just would have kind of been appalled. I do understand. Um, I got to a half marathon before my doctor told me that if I kept running, I wasn't going to walk when I was oh, 50. No. Um,
2: oh, I'm sorry but, to hear that.
1: Well, he and I have an agreement. Although I'm not sure he would recognize this. And Okay. He's agreed not to ask, and I've agreed only to run four or five miles at a time. Okay,
0: well, that's that's good. At least you can still do some running and, and get that nice, um, you know, kind of endorphin release.
1: Yeah, oh. just about the time that kicks in, we have to quit. You know how it is. <laughs> yes. Oh. I'm sure when I get really old, they will have invented some kind of artificial foot, and I'll be fine, but... <laughs>
0: Oh man. Well, I yesterday ran for the first time since I've been in Colorado and I'm at about 8,000 feet where I am right now. And it was just mm-hmm. incredibly difficult. So it wasn't quite so enjoyable as most runs, but, um, I was glad <laughs> I got out and did it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I understand. I've frequently been asked if running is fun and I say, sometimes I say yes. And sometimes <laughs> I say having run is fun. It's kind of like riding. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I don't, um, after every marathon I do, I the initial feeling is I never want to do this again in my life. And then about a month goes by and I say, oh, I've got to sign up for something else. And it's just kind of addictive.
1: Yeah, I think I didn't. I guess I didn't say I, I mentioned my younger daughter who plays softball, Mm -hmm. but my older daughter rows and I've never rowed, but I have to imagine doing six or 10 or 15 K rowing is kind of the same thing. Mm
0: -hmm. It must be. I
1: admire her greatly and I'm glad
0: it's her. (laughs) I've only ever rowed on the rowing machine, the, you know, the erg. So Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be a much probably different experience in the water, probably more enjoyable. Um, But yeah, I've never done that.
1: She tells me that's true, and I'm happy to let her believe that. So, <laughs> so how many
0: classes will you
1: teach? Um, well,
0: let's see. The first semester, I will teach two, and the second semester, one. So it's a a lighter teaching load and more heavy research expectations. Okay. Yeah.
1: And is that something you're looking forward to?
0: I am. Um, for the past few years, at when I was at New York University, I was in an administrator role, and it was my first time in administration, and it just took away really all the time I had for research. This book was one of the only projects I um, really had time to work on from a research perspective, so I'm very excited to get back to it. mm. Yeah, already gonna this gonna summer say. I've just I've been writing manuscripts every chance I get because I have so much data from previous projects that I had started and then didn't get to finish. So yeah, it's mm-hmm. that's exciting.
1: I was gonna say administration somehow is built to steal your joy is my experience. <laughs> so
0: yeah, that was, that's kind of how I felt about it too. I thought I was really going to enjoy it and there were some aspects that I did, but I think overall I, I enjoy much more being in the classroom and also working on research. Um, and in this new yeah. role, I'll be able to work a lot more with PhD students. Um, and that's something I really enjoy too. So yeah. yeah that's overall. something I've never
1: really done. Okay. I've, uh, I'm at a small liberal arts school, and so my writing and teaching are really intertwined. I write, I, I know that, well, maybe in the current world, it's not as weird to say this. So I write extended role immersion games to use in classrooms. And, and so professionally, that means I've written a game about the emergence of Title IX and the way in which a composite fictional New England university has to address oh. how to meet the demands of Title IX on the campus. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, that does bring me joy. And I get to mm-hmm. think about how to engage students in playing in trying, helping them try and imagine themselves into the world of the mid-1990s and what Title mm-hmm. IX would have meant for them at that time. Um, and every time when I had to put that down and go to an academic council meeting, I, you know, I, do, I don't drink alcohol, but I suddenly have this urge to do so
0: <laughs> oh wow and i'd love to see that game oh no i was just thinking that sounds really really cool how did the students respond yeah, yeah. to uh, it or, or react i guess what was their reaction to doing it
1: um my students um my, so so this is part of a series called reacting to the past which has a variety of different kind of games or modules or they are games, although academics don't get tenure for games, so we call them something else. But um, it's been well-received. Uh, it's been played at, I don't, I've lost track, 20 or 30 different colleges across the country. And it's now, it should be out by the end of the year. Norton's going to publish it. So um, I don't oh, wow. know that it'll be interesting to you, but I'll be happy to send you the link if you're interested. And and then you can smile and look at it and, uh, and, and say you never have to talk to me again. But
0: <laughs> I would love to see the link. So, yeah, please do uh, share that.
1: Yeah, sure. I'd love on.
0: to see the link.
2: I yeah. actually teach a um, Title IX class.
1: Oh really? Yeah, I, that makes mm-hmm. sense Probably for you. Probably the only one in the country. Country.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. you're yeah, so back. To you have been. You have abused your poor puppy um, into silence. I'm so sorry. <laughs> tell the puppy that I apologize. It's my fault. Um, no. We ready to get started again? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to leave a little bit of blank space. Um, As I recall, we ended with Andrea talking about media, uh, the media and uh, Olympics. So that's a good place to kind of jump into the media coverage and assumptions about media coverage. So that's where I'll start and we'll kind of riff on that. So, so Andrea, you talked about media coverage uh, and you referenced your essay uh, in the book, which is really uh, uh, fantastic. I wonder it is a, I think, a common perception that uh, women do not receive anywhere near the, co- or women's sports do not receive anywhere near the coverage uh, in the media that men's sports do. So, so, Andrea, I wonder if you could just kind of uh, clarify that. Assuming that's true, what kind of, um, what kind of gap are we talking about? Uh, and is that true across platforms? and, and has there been change over time?
0: Sure. Um, I think the most, I mean, I, there are different statistics, I feel like, that come out kind of every year. But um, the latest that I've seen is that 40% of all athletes are women. But in the mm. US, the amount of coverage that they receive is about 4% when we look at all um, traditional media like television, um, so broadcast and, and written, um, whether that be on news websites or on um, in actual newspapers, magazines, that type of thing. So there's a huge gap in how much women are receiving coverage versus how many women are actually involved in professional sports um, that we would think would receive that type of coverage. I think the... And this is a global phenomenon. It's not something that's unique to the US. Um, in the UK, mm. that number kind of hovers between 2 to 4% of of coverage devoted to women athletes. And I think the best country that I've seen thus far is Australia, where 10% of their television coverage is devoted to women's sport. Um, So it is a a problem. And interestingly, I think with the introduction of new media and social media, there are different ways for women's sport to, um, I wouldn't say overcome the lack of coverage, but there are things that they can do to Um, to promote themselves a bit more. And so I think we see a lot of women's um, sport organizations and female athletes who take to social media um, or, you Mm -hmm. know, even with the now with podcasting, you can have um, female athletes who are interviewed Mm -hmm. on a kind of a niche podcast or something like that. And so there are more opportunities to reach audiences um, during the Olympic Games, typically coverage of, of women athletes tends to almost be equal to men in terms of the the amount of coverage that they receive. But then, when the Olympics are over, that again um, drops drastically. And the other thing that I think is really important to remember is that it's not always just about the amount of coverage, but also the quality of coverage and the type of language that's used to describe athletes. Um, and the 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 research that I've done and the research that other scholars in our field have done has just repeatedly shown that women are described in much different ways. Um, they are often sexualized. Their accomplishments are diminished, and instead, it's uh, things are focused on with their feminine, femininity and their, um, you know, personal lives rather than their actual athletic accomplishments. So um, I do think that there are still some some major um, inequalities in the way that men and women are portrayed. I think that we're slowly starting to see changes, but again, I, I would like to see that happen um, much more quickly because even as you know as recently as the 2016 Summer Olympics, there were a lot of um, instances of female athletes being covered in a very, um, I guess, sexualized way or in ways that diminished their own accomplishments.
1: I am uh, I was intrigued by part of your essay where you, you briefly talked about the way in which f- female athletes have turned to social media, but maybe don't use it in a strategic way or haven't thought a lot about how to present themselves. Mm-hmm. So, so I wonder if you might say a little bit about the Both the opportunities, but also the challenges of using social media to increase exposure to either by individual athletes or to women's sports as a whole.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Well, some of the research I've done has focused specifically on individual female athletes. Um, And what I found when I spoke with these athletes and when I interviewed them is that they all wanted to use social media in a way to really build their own brand and to build their presence because they saw that as a way that they could actually get sponsorship. And, you know, a lot of, especially Olympic athletes um, have no sources of funding if they don't have sponsorships. And so Mm -hmm. they're looking for anything they can to allow them to train without having to also get a full-time job, which takes away from the training and, uh, you know, has um, consequences on their athletic success. So one of the things I found is that they all really seem to want to use it in this way to help promote themselves and build their brand, but they weren't sure how to do it in a strategic way. And what they reported was um, that their national governing bodies of sport were doing some education with them, but not a lot. And it tended to be right before a big competition when their focus wasn't mm. so much on um, how to build their brand, but more so of, of competing and you know, doing well on this world stage. Um, another issue that, that came up in that research that was really interesting to me and I think it poses a challenge for female athletes because we see social media as this great um, you know, way to promote themselves. But they all talked about how they received so much unwanted communication on social media from mm-hmm. oftentimes um, people who were maybe, maybe considered themselves fans, but it borderlined on stalking in some situations. And that really made them then not want to share things on social media and not want to use social media because it, it was, um, disturbing to them. And so that's something that I know female athletes face. There hasn't been as much research on male athletes. So I don't know if they face those issues to the same degree. Um, but I know that that's one challenge women face in trying to find that balance between promoting themselves, but then also being, you know, a little bit afraid of, of the communication they receive in return.
1: Nancy, I know that um, a traditional response among some of the media would be that there's less interest in women's sports and there's less interest among women non-athletes in sports in general, and that explains the difference in coverage. Um, I think your book shows those aren't true. I wonder if you could respond to that uh, to that uh, answer as to how, how would you respond to people who, who explain the lack of coverage that way?
2: Well, I think what we what that really says, I believe Mary Jo Cain has a phenomenal quote mm-hmm. about this. But in essence, um, the what that really says is the sport editors are not interested in women's sport mm. and the gatekeepers are typically men. Um, and, you know, a great example, just this past what Sunday I was watching the Las Vegas Aces play and it was a ESPN game. So we had media presence Mm -hmm. and I looked down at all the photographers who were there as photojournalists and every single one of them was male, Hmm. you know, and that's, I'm increasingly seeing the problem in that. Not that the male photographers, photographers aren't going to frame the female athletes. Well, although that's another issue, but the reality is it is incredibly difficult for those who do want to cover women's sport to sell the idea to their editors that there's value there because there is this long-held narrative that you just reiterated, Kelly, that um, no one's interested in women's sport. And the truth of that couldn't be further from the truth. We're now... So uh, the Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women's Sport, Nicole LaVoy, who wrote one of our chapters, um, they have been doing a hashtag campaign called Here's Proof. And what they do is they show the statistics on viewership of, you know, men's sport, women's sport across the board. So we're talking uh, the, the uh, U.S. Women's World Cup, of course, not U.S., but the Women's World Cup versus, say, Stanley Cup playoffs, NFL playoff games, Major League Baseball, actually World Series games. And when you start looking at the data, you start seeing that there simply is not, substance to that narrative anymore Hmm. the fact is people are interested in women's sport viewership does continue to increase and all of that is in the face of this reality that those of us who want to follow it have to seek it out still it's it's not easy it's not in our face all the time like the nfl major league baseball etc um you know in my mind, if we saw that same level of promotion and audience building among the media for women's sport, it would, it would take off and we would see phenomenal increases in viewership and audience followings and fandom, et cetera. Cause as it is right now, we have some really great products out there. You know, national pro fast pitch league mm-hmm. is one where mm-hmm. they are now preparing our, you know, future Olympic team and future Olympians for other, um, national teams and you know they're they're doing their best to create a quality product as is the National Women's Soccer League but you know it's it's an incredibly cluttered marketplace at this point in time and so fighting for that media coverage really in essence translates to fighting for marketing dollars sponsorship dollars everything that drives the equation that it takes to make a sport property successful
1: yeah, I want to turn to marketing and, and sponsorship in just a moment. But first, I I'm I was struck in reading the essays. Um, several of them, David Berry specifically, others of them, either in passing or implicitly, um, looked at chronology, looked about the way in compared women's sports leagues as they exist now to uh, the status of, of the NFL or Major League Baseball at a similar point in their chronological evolution. So when Major League Baseball was 30 or 40 years old or something like that, um, and argued that that's one reason why casual viewers or analysts misunderstand the success of women's sports leagues. Um, does that argue... So that's in the essays, but of course you don't control the, the essays as editors. Is that, is that an argument you accept, that we should recognize the importance of the youth of, of these uh, sports organizations?
2: I do believe that that argument has merit, and I, I believe that David Barry's chapter really demonstrates, from an economic uh, perspective, how the comparison along the time frame shows where the evolution of women's sport has actually been much much quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we, we will see it even continue to be be quicker, at least with regard to women's team sport. Now, that's not true of you know the LPGA and the WTA, they, they've been a long, around a long time. But I still also believe that it is like um, not comparing apples to oranges, it's like comparing carrots to steak. <laughs> um, because the truth is, <laughs> you know, you're, you're talking about the, the media coverage is such a linchpin in the success of any sport property. It just simply is. Um, what's fascinating to me right now Again, resistance, the resistance to investing in the coverage of women's sport when e-sport is something that the dollars have just been poured into in the last few years. And I mean, huge amounts of money being poured into that media being surrounding that like Sports Business Journal now has a whole focus just on Mm e-sport. Have they ever created a section and a focus on women's sport? No, they haven't in all of these years. So, you know, it's it's still, I believe, that there is a great deal of bias going on. I don't want to nece- necessarily point to um, men as the bias, you know, holding the bias. But they certainly, the men in the sport media are the ones that are making the decisions. They're the gatekeepers. And until they realize what the value of women's sport is and what it could be, um, we're going to continue to really have to, change the narrative, change the rhetoric. Um, So David Berry's argument is one that has some merit. It it holds some weight, but I think it's only one. I think there are other important arguments to pay attention to.
1: uh, Andrea, um, I'm I'm struck. So so Nancy talked about a section on Um, esports. ESPN has essentially adopted a tactic or a strategy, whatever it is of, for the most part, putting women's sports into a parallel, isolated section of the website, right? They've got mm-hmm. ESPNW, uh, which in some sense, I suppose, highlights women's sports. On the other hand, um, makes it more difficult to find it. Uh, I wonder what you think of of that kind of strategy for media and, and, and women's sports.
0: It's a, that's a difficult question. Um, I think, I don't know that I have one straightforward answer on how I feel about it, because I think in some ways it's a really positive thing that there are outlets where people who are interested in women's sport can go. And you know Mm -hmm. that that's the coverage you're going to find there. On the other hand, I think one of the things that that Nancy has highlighted a little bit in some of her previous um, responses is that until women's sport can, can sort of be in the forefront where everyone's looking. So, you know, everybody's watching NBC and ESPN and these sort of major news outlets. Um, and I think women's sport deserves a place on those outlets as well. And so it, it is nice to have a place to, to, to receive coverage on women's sport, but I also think it's not enough. I think that, um, you know, you know, even just with the world cup, we've seen that when women's sport is on a major news outlet, it it has the ability Mm -hmm. to receive these huge ratings and that people will tune in and people are interested and will watch. So I'm not, I, I don't think that necessarily just creating these sort of women only outlets is the answer. Um, certainly it's much better than when I was growing up and there was nothing like that and there was no way to find out about women's sport, but I do still think, um, that women's sport needs to be highlighted in some of the larger um, outlets and arenas. And one of the things that that's interesting as well, that we highlight in the book is that there is interest in women's sport. It's not something that people are not interested in. And Nielsen did a really great mm-hmm. um, report in 2018 um, where they covered sport fans in eight different nations and found that 84% of sport fans, these are both male and female fans are mm-hmm. interested in women's sports. So the interest is there, um, and I think once once broadcasters and media outlets can actually embrace that and realize that, um, and and give women's sport a chance, that's when we'll start to see a difference.
1: Yeah, Nancy also mentioned Andrea the, this this distinction between individual sports and and, and team sports. Mm-hmm. I wonder, and uh, one of the things that comes up repeatedly in the essay is the way in which um, sports women's sports. Given the subject of your book, I'm sure it's true for men's sports as well. But, but the, the sports you're talking about are gendered, uh, and I wonder if you might talk about that about the distinction, the way in which some sports like g- gymnastics are gendered feminine, mm-hmm. others are gendered masculine, and how how that plays into this this discussion about coverage and, and fandom.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly there there are some classifications about kind of different sports, and some are deemed more feminine, like your your um, sports like gymnastics and figure skating or diving, where if you really look at it, um, a lot of it has to do with the attire. So what they're wearing, but then also Mm. that those sports have kind of the aesthetic aspect where they're, they're also doing these kind of graceful dance moves. Um, and then there are other sports that tend to be deemed more masculine, like, um, and I think those are the ones where you have a really, um, you have kind of the men's, comparison point, like, like, um, softball, where you might compare that to baseball Mm -hmm. or women's basketball, there's men's basketball. And so, um, I think a lot of the coverage of the sports that are deemed more feminine tend to, again, um, a lot of the research shows highlight these athletes as girls or talk about them in um, ways that, that cast them as children. And then with the more masculine sports, um, then there's almost like this bias against the women because they're playing a sport that is deemed more masculine. So it's, it's almost a situation of you can't win um, with the coverage, but I think um, sort of, I guess I'm trying to get back to the original question. Um, I think that the type of sport does impact coverage and the way that athletes are covered. Um, And it's interesting because there, there tends to be, I think, a bit of a, definitely a double standard with a lot of reporting. Um, and, you know, I can think of examples from this previous world cup where people would tweet the picture of Megan Rapino when she was celebrating or Alex Morgan and just, just yep. mock them and say, Oh, the ego. I can't believe how, you know, just these, these terrible women who have so much confidence. And then the same person mm-hmm. would tweet or talk about a, a photo of a man who uh, a male athlete doing basically the exact same thing, but they were celebrated for it. So we still have mm-hmm. this huge mm-hmm. discrimination between men and women and what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable um, in sport.
1: Nancy, you talked about marketing and, and sponsorship. And I'd like to start by asking you about a phrase that um, maybe shows that I don't think much about marketing and maybe I should think more. Um, several of your essays refer to this phrase, pink it and shrink it. What is that?
2: (laughs) Uh, It's something I wish to go away. Uh, (laughs) It is uh, historically the sport industry's answer to women participating in sport and the fact that they did not know how to make a shoe for a woman or a jersey for a woman or shorts for a woman. And so... This was really the strategy that came about, I would say, in the 1980s when they at least started to try to make product for women. Um, And, again, the notion was, well, we'll just make the shoe smaller and we'll put pink on it. We'll make the shirt smaller and put pink on it. And then that, unfortunately, has continued to this day. So even the NFL, in their first attempts at merchandising uh, NFL related products to women so jerseys and and fan-based products they did the whole pink it and shrink it thing too Uh, fortunately the message now has gotten through that for example little girls who idolize a athlete whether it's an nfl athlete or major league baseball athlete or it's a WNBA athlete they want the jersey of the athlete in the color of the team they don't want a pink jersey um, because they're a little girl. So it's it's an interesting phenomenon that honestly shows the uh, the bias and the lack of investment in learning about women and uh, female athletes. I, even to this day, i'm I'm amazed all the time, I, again, going back to the WNBA, but also college women's basketball, I watch those athletes tug on their shorts and Mm -hmm. it occurs to me that those shorts are the shorts that have been made for the men's basketball players Mm -hmm. and that Nike has made them so that they would fit the women, sort of. But did anyone actually ask the women whether they want shorts that go down to their needs? Because I think a great Mm -hmm. deal of them would say, no, thank you. Um, You know, especially based on what I'm seeing when I'm watching them play, I see, I'm seeing them pull them up and tuck them in and since you're a history buff, Kelly, it looks like the good old bloomer days, um, you know, because they're trying to get the, the land of the short out of their way so they can perform. Um, so in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, how are we still in this day and age, 2019, not asking the athletes what kind of apparel, what you know, what functioning of the equipment is going to best serve them? And I'm not saying that it isn't being done. But there is still that pink it and shrink it mindset out there, unfortunately, that we're trying to get past.
1: So there's a number of essays about marketing in this. What what can we learn now from those essays about the right way to market either to women or to market women's sports?
2: Well, probably the most significant message that needs to be heard is that sex sells sex. Sex doesn't sell women's sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say that because, you know, we have a history in women's sport of the sexualizing of the athlete in order to make her consumable. And I know this has been a really difficult challenge for female athletes. So uh, Janet Fink, her, her article on sexism really speaks to this. And her work in the marketing of women's sport, uh, women athletes, really speaks to this. Because the interesting thing is, you know, female athletes do have a feminine side, many of them, that they want to be pretty, they want to um, play that, that role as a woman, and they want to be seen as a woman, whatever that definition is for them. And yet they also want to be able to set that aside and say, okay, now I'm an athlete, and when I'm an athlete and I'm competing, I want to be taken seriously as a competitor and be able to kind of dichotomize those different um personas, if you will. So the interesting thing is, we're I think the media is starting to accept that, that a woman athlete can be highly competitive and perhaps um, behave in ways that, you know, as Andrea alluded to, demonstrate phenomenal levels of confidence, which, by the way, is, is new on some mm-hmm. levels, um, to see these women celebrate themselves and celebrate their victories in such a a profound way—it's it, that really is is changing uh, the dynamic uh, with regard to how the media sees women because these women are just quite honestly—they're—they're they're a new generation. They're not going to be play small. They're not going to be demur, demure as was always how women thought that they needed to be, um, and that's really pushing that envelope on gender stereotypes and and how you know gender roles. So it's, it's interesting in my mind from a marketing standpoint, it's really challenging those who have commodified the image of women athletes to see them in ways that perhaps they uh, don't necessarily know or are comfortable with. Uh, I, I guess, again, you know, if you think about male athletes, it's so much easier because masculinity is so directly aligned with being a football player. So that's that's just not really difficult from a marketing standpoint. But a, for a woman to be able to take, say, an athlete like Serena Williams, you know, it's it's made it easier, actually, for the marketers to say, okay, well, now she's a mom. We know what to do with that. We know how to market, you know, a woman that is a mom. So that's actually made it a little bit easier for them. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they figured out how to uh, portray Serena Williams is in a way that can really take advantage of all that she has to offer as a, as a sponsor, as an athlete, as um, someone who can, you know, honestly move the needle needle with selling product.
0: And um, one thing I would add to that as well, from the marketing perspective, um, Nancy focused a lot on marketing the athletes themselves. But I think in terms of marketing the sport, um, a lot of times whether it be the leagues themselves or the media and the way they portray things. But I think that we tend to look at a woman's sport and compare it to the men's. And, you know, with, for example, with the WNBA, one of the things would be to highlight the ways that women's basketball is such a different game from men's basketball and highlighting the, the differences in the ways that it is exciting in its own right and not trying to make it seem like the same game as men's basketball, but played by women. Um, you know so I think that that's a really important point as well is to not you know not always compare the women's the women's sport to the men's sport and instead highlighting what it is that makes the women's sport so unique and so exciting and would attract um, fans and audiences.
1: yeah I've wondered um, ESPN as I suspect both of you have seen has has suddenly started to feature softball fast pitch softball. Mm-hmm in the spring. Um, And I wonder if that will have an easier time separating itself in terms of attention and ratings precisely because it does look different. Whereas women's basketball, it superficially is easier to compare it to men's basketball. Uh, And therefore it's, it's my students, many of whom haven't thought through, will simply respond, well, it's slower and lower and I'd rather watch the men play, which once you pick away at that discussion and ask them if they watch high school sports, starts to not really be very logical argument, but I do wonder if that would be true. Um, when I asked Nancy at the beginning about the state of sports, um, you gave, Nancy, you gave a pretty optimistic answer. Let me let me ask you about one specific area that your book covers and see if that's still true. And, and that's in terms of management, about the role of women in, in coaching and managing and administering. Um, what can you say, and I'll start with Nancy, but Andrea can contribute, um, about where we stand in terms of, uh, of women in those positions in sports?
2: It's an interesting question. And I Kelly, I think I choose to be optimistic because, like I said, I've been doing this for so long that mm-hmm. if I don't choose optimism, it gets really hard to stay, <laughs> to stay motivated. Um, right now, some of the things that are happening in um, leadership and management are good, and some of the things that are happening are incredibly frustrating.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So on the positive level, we are seeing more – we're seeing women get into higher-level positions. So C-suite types of positions – uh, where there simply weren't women before. So whether that's the NFL, Major League Baseball, you know, the mainstream sport areas, ESPN even uh, has some high-profile women in those C-suite or decision-making roles. And they've earned their way to those positions, which is, is just it's, – it's such a, a nice shift to see uh, even in, in you know, again, a, a sort of, I think, a prominent role that's very visible to so women sportscasters. Uh, I look at all of these things and it's it's so just, I want to say, rewarding, you know, because I've, I've been trying, I've been advocating for this um, kind of shift for many, many years. But it's, it's really nice to see women in those roles, making those calls, um, making those decisions, being held up as uh, the leaders in their areas, So we have an entire chapter that looks at the trailblazers of women uh, in, in sport. And, you know, unfortunately the flip side is, you know, we've got one, if we've got one, well, we're making it, you know, we're, we're making progress. The positive side to that is, you know, Becky Hammond broke through in the NBA as a coach. And now we're actually seeing more women break through in the NBA as a coach. Again, Contradictory to that, I look at the sidelines of the WNBA and I see men head coaches, Mm -hmm. which gets incredibly frustrating because I'm not really sure where these guys are even coming from. And I know we now have over 20 years of women who played at the professional level who should be getting into those roles as coaches on, um, on WNBA teams. And it's even worse at the college level. This is an area where a great deal of attention now is being generated thanks to, again, the research of Nicole Lavoie and the Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women in Sport. But they're issuing a report card each year on the college, Division I college teams looking at the gender representation of their head coaching positions. So right now, the data says we're at about 40% of the head coaches of women's sport. Women's sport, not men's sport, not all sport, women's sport are women, which means 60% of the coaches of women's sport are men. Uh, this is a number that has actually gone down. It's been traje- The trajectory has been negative for a few years. I do believe because we're now getting the data out there and showing this to the, again, decision makers, the athletic directors, that they're starting to ask, uh, how do we get a better grade? How do we improve this? What do we do? So that that alone shows that there is an an interest and an ambition in shifting this this trajectory. But it's it gets back to that notion of, you know, if you can see her, you can be her kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We're still mm-hmm. waiting for Kim Eng to make it through. She's the yeah. one woman that's been yeah. positioned best um, for years and years and years to be the first GM in Major League Baseball. You know, I'm waiting for that day, and I know a lot of people are because, you know, it, it just is silly. She's got the qualifications. People have outright said if she was a man, she would have been in that position by now. So there's no question that there's, you know, there's some gender-biased decision-making going on. But at the same time, you know, the more we get, the the better uh, the landscape looks for those who come after these women. Uh, one of the chapters in our book, they – I. When they looked at the composition of boards, which is another area that a lot of times gets overlooked. And, you know, we now have the research that says if we get as much as 30 percent composition on a, on a board, then we're actually going to start to see uh, that manifest in the decision making. And so I think we have to be mindful of numbers and not necessarily quotas, but where are we? What is the representation? Is it trending up? Is it trending down? And I honestly believe that having those numbers is going to help uh, help people to make better decisions in hiring to hopefully create a positive trajectory in each of these areas going forward.
1: We've taken a lot of your time and we can, we can talk about this book for a long time, but I, but I wanted to spend a little bit of time, given that the World Cup just ended, uh, and Andrea, I'll, I'll ask you to start. I wonder what your response was or what your reactions were. As somebody who studies this, what did you notice? What did you think was encouraging or surprising? Um, What were your responses to the World Cup?
0: Yeah, I think one thing that that Nancy actually touched on earlier and, and we've talked a little bit about was just how, I guess, outspoken the athletes were. And I think in the past, a lot of times we've seen female athletes, especially who just want to, they just kind of, you know, put their head down, stick to the sport. um, Don't want to make waves because that's kind of how they've been taught. And, you know, that's ladylike behavior. And I loved it that in this world cup, we saw athletes celebrating their own success um, speaking out when they thought that there were injustices. Um, And I, I just love seeing that the athletes really seem to be very empowered and I, that was one of the big differences um, for me in this World Cup. And, you know, obviously with the U.S. women's team right now fighting for equal pay, that was a big part of it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so for me, that was an encouraging um, thing to see during this World Cup. But one of the other things that I loved was just from my own kind of personal life, seeing um, people latch onto this team and actually seeing little uh, young boys who looked at these women as role models. And I have a friend um, from high school and I saw she posted on Facebook her two sons who are probably about um, you know 10 years old and maybe seven years old. And they had one of them received their um, Alex Morgan soccer kit and the other one got his Megan Rapino mm-hmm. soccer kit and they were outside playing in these and could not have been prouder. And I can't remember any other point in time when I've personally seen little boys who wanted to wear the women's jersey and not the men's. Um, So I saw, I see things like that as being a huge success and, you know, just really um, kind of a shift in some of the ways that our society is looking at women and looking at women athletes as role models. They're not just role models for little girls anymore. They're also role models for the boys. Um so to me that was that was really exciting and a and a big success from this particular World Cup.
1: Yeah, I'll ask I'll ask Nancy in just a second to to contribute her thoughts, but but I know you Andrea, you just relocated to to, to the UK. Mm-hmm. Um did you see differences in, in the English response? Uh and English team did well. Um, or did it feel like the same kind of moment in England that it did in the US or not?
0: I I don't think it was maybe quite as significant in the UK. Um, I, I did see that all of the people that I knew there and, you know, even people I didn't know um, were getting very, they were all very interested in it. I mean, that's what they were watching in the evenings. It wasn't that they were turning on some mm-hmm. kind of men's sport. It was like, Oh, the women are playing tonight. Yeah. We're going to watch the game. And so um, it seemed to me that for, for them, it, it, it was almost more, more of a norm to, you know, support your national team and watch the women's, um, the same way that you would the men's. But again, I don't know. I, I it wasn't, that's just basing it on, you know, kind of the people that I've been yeah. around, um, there, but mm-hmm. I, I do think it was nice to see. I felt like they also were happy for, for the U S women's team when they, when they won and I didn't see a great deal of sexism, um, and things like that. Like I watched obviously the English coverage because I was living there during the tournament. So I wasn't watching the U S broadcast of it, but I felt like the English cover coverage was, um, very, very fair. Um, I didn't, I didn't witness sexism in the coverage. I thought that the broadcast mm-hmm. team that they had was excellent and focused a lot on the skill of the players and they knew, you know, the history of a lot of these players and, and, and things like that. So a very, very knowledgeable broadcast team.
1: Nancy, what were your reactions to watching the tournament?
0: Well, I
2: I watch it as a fan, and I watch it as a researcher. Uh, So just kind of to support what Andrea just said, as a fan, it was just so much fun. And I think it was probably as much fun to see the reaction that she described with her friend on Facebook, right? To see this sort of norm where... Yeah, families, kids, dads, moms, everybody is supporting the U.S. team. And it's not, you know, the. I, I wish if we were going to do gender marking, we would do it for both men and women. Right. So we'll call it the U.S. men's national team and the U.S. women's national team. That's fine. Um, but, you know, this this tournament, it was our national team. It was whether you were in France or in the U.K. or here in the U.S., uh, and that's supported by the numbers, which, again, you know, looking at the viewership, this World Cup had over a billion. Uh, the, the viewership for the entire tournament was over a billion. And the, actually the most watched match, which is pretty phenomenal, was France versus Brazil. And it was 59 million who watched that 16, that round of 16 match. Right. So, you know, I'm I'm paying attention to those things going, holy cow, this is something that we have not seen before. Um, The other thing that, again, I was paying attention to and I'm just really excited by is the fact that some of the U.S. sponsors have really advocated for the equal treatment of the women's national team. And that's Mm -hmm. a really significant shift again. Uh, So you got you now have Visa saying we will mandate that 50 percent of our sponsorship dollars are allocated through the women's national team. Uh, going forward and that's as a result of this women's world cup, you had Lunabar as well as um Proctor and Gamble step up and say, We will pay to compensate the women um to make up the gap between what the men are paid and the women are paid in bonuses. So that was phenomenal when you've got, you know, Lunabar contributing like over thirty thousand dollars per player and you've got twenty three players. That That says a great deal about that company. Now, no question, they want to move product, but at the same time, for those who are fans of, of the women's national team and they see a brand like that step up and contribute in that way, it's really starting to show that, you know, this connection between those who are strong, highly identified fans and those who sponsor those teams can really make a difference. And personally, I mean I'm paying attention to that kind of thing and I'm celebrating companies like Lunabar, like PG and E, like Visa, and even Budweiser of all things, being, you know, not really excited about them being the first beer sponsor. I don't know that we need that. <laughs> but I you know, whatever. I guess it's I guess it's a, a marker, right? Of of you've made it in sport if you have a beer sponsor. Mm-hmm. Um but more importantly, they sent the message saying, you know, are you going to continue to support this team when they come home and it's not the world cup anymore. And I just, you know, again, anecdotally tuned in this last weekend to the national women's soccer league. And the stadium was packed, mm-hmm. you know, Portland was playing, uh, gosh, who was it? I don't remember, but it was oh North Carolina actually. And again, stadium was packed. So I, I'm really hopeful that, all of this momentum that has been built in the very things that Andrea was talking about with the, the shift in how these athletes have represented themselves. Um, I'm, I'm really hopeful that all of this is going to continue and is going to be what is really the tipping point. I, I'm truly hopeful that this, this summer has been the tipping point for the acceptance of women's sport and that we will continue to see these kinds of, uh, of shifts happening at a more, I would say, sustainable and consistent
1: basis. Well, we've taken a lot of your time. I always end the podcast with the same way, uh, with two questions, and I'll ask each of you each one, and I'll start with um, Andrea with the first question. Um, I always like to ask guests to identify a book or a documentary or something else, something that was meaningful to you uh, as you were doing the research, or as you were thinking about this subject, that that you think the audience would benefit um, from reading. Another way to answer that, ask that question is that um, we're recording this in the middle of August. I'm in the U.S., that means I've got about a week and a half while I have a life left before teaching <laughs> starts again. What should I read in that two weeks, or what should I see? What would you recommend? Well,
0: this is. It might seem like an odd choice. Um, I think this is something that I've fo- I have followed very, very closely and something that kind of has personal significance to me since I was a gymnast growing up. And it's been a sport where I've mm-hmm. also been a coach and a judge um, and competed um, at the club level in college and those types of things. But there's a film that came out um Earlier this year, called At the Heart of Gold. And it's a documentary that was on HBO and it featured survivors of the Larry, La- Larry Nasser abuse scandal that happened um, in US mm. gymnastics. But to me, for anyone who was interested in that entire um, issue, and for anybody who kind of followed the media coverage of it, It's really important because it's something that gave the survivors a really strong voice. But I think it also helps anyone who was never involved in gymnastics to understand how it was able to happen, because I think that was you know, Mm -hmm. kind of one of the things that was in a lot of the media coverage or a lot of the response to things is just like, well, how did this happen? How did parents let it happen? How did these gymnasts not say anything? And I think when you can really understand the culture of that sport, then you can understand how something like that was able to happen. And I think that's going to be an important thing, not just with women's sport, but in all sport going forward is revising um, massive, you know, regulation shifts, massive changes in the way things are done. um, And it's going to be important for all sports. So that was a really, um, really interesting. And I think well, well done documentary. So it's called at the heart of gold. Hmm. And
1: Nancy, what would you suggest?
2: Well, I'm a little old school, admittedly, so <laughs> I'm going to refer to actually two films that just came out in the last probably two years, I believe. But I think both of these would be really instrumental, especially for students to understand uh, the historical context and by understanding the historical context, really getting a better sense of what uh, the challenges have been and Continue to be for women. So the first one is Battle of the Sexes, which is just the Billie Jean King uh, Story right Uh, against Bobby Riggs and you know, I I was able to see that match happen in my youth, but I know many of you know uh, the Folks that we teach now and probably even some of our colleagues were not able to witness that so to see that story unfold as as a motion picture they did, I think they did a really nice job, and they, um, I think, particularly did a good job demonstrating how pivotal the sponsorship piece was to making the WTA come to fruition, but also the mindset that was held uh, about women. And, of course, it was the 1970s, but oddly enough, a lot of that is are still some of the barriers we're trying to overcome today. And the other one would be the recently released um Film uh, on the basis of sex. So, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg story,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which again, it, you know, it, it's not about sport. It isn't even necessarily about Title IX, it's about gender discrimination. But I think it does a great deal to help provide that historical context that is so much of what has continued to create these challenges. Uh, in, in women's sport, but in pay equality, in any of the areas where we experience gender discrimination. And really that context in my mind, if, if we can get folks to understand what some of that is, or that, that foundational component, then we really have a better opportunity to help folks understand how far we've come, as well as how far we have yet to go.
1: Well, it looks like I have my weekend viewing <laughs> set um, all laid out, um, so thank you. Uh, I, I always end, again, like I said, with the same question. Um, so, Nancy, you first. What are you working on now?
2: Well, I I am uh, unfortunately driven by frustration, <laughs> just to be honest. <laughs> um, Sports Business Journal is a trade publication that so many of our colleagues use in their in their classes, and uh, it is where we kind of keep a a pulse on what's going on in the industry. And I've written op-eds for them before, uh, communicating my frustration with the lack of of attention to women in sport. Uh, I just, I need to do a content analysis, quite honestly, because the lack of attention to women in sport, women's sport, women athletes, all of that is glaring. And after all that has occurred over this summer, I, I'm just finding it incredibly unacceptable. So I believe the only way to bring attention to that is through, again, a study that will quantify just to what degree that's happening. So that's that's my most immediate project.
1: And Andrea, I know that you and I talking earlier, you were excited about the chance to do more research in your new job. What are you going to study? <laughs> what are you going to write about?
0: Um. Well, one of the things that I'm that I'm currently working on is a study. I, I mentioned earlier that I have done some work where I um, worked with athletes um, talking about their social media use and how females specifically are using social media to build a brand. And that one of the things that came from that was that they didn't feel that they received a lot of support from their national governing bodies mm-hmm. of sport. Um which would be like, you know, your USA track and field or your USA swimming, that type of organization. And so I've been doing some work, um, where I'm actually speaking now with the national governing bodies to find out what they are doing in terms of training and education for athletes in this area. And, um, I'm working on hopefully writing up something that will assist them to learn from some of the organizations that currently have what I would consider best practices in that area and hopefully helping the national governing bodies in that way to um, better prepare their athletes and better assist the athletes when they are trying to build their social media brand. And one of the kind of unique aspects of it is also looking at how they're training hmm. youth athletes. So um, there's such a thing as the Youth Olympic Games. And are they doing any work with, with The athletes when they're that young to sort of teach them about, you know, social media use and and what's acceptable and and sort of what's appropriate to post and what isn't Um, and starting it at a younger level so that as they progress through their careers and and reach that kind of senior elite level, um, they've been able to build their brand sort of over time rather than trying to all of a sudden do it when, you know, they make the Olympics or something like that. So that's I think that's probably one of my biggest projects for what's left of the summer um, is finishing that work.
1: Well, both of those projects seem important and necessary and, and, and interesting. And and so is the book. And the book was fabulous. I learned a lot from reading it. Um, and I hope down the line that as your new research unfolds, um, we'll get a chance to talk again on the show. But for now, thank you so much for joining us. And and I wish you the very best of you. Um, what at least for Nancy is in uh, a sadly short left uh, amount of summer that's left um, and have a great beginning to your school year. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much, Kelly. It was great to speak with you and and we really appreciate being invited to be on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Kelly. We, we appreciate it. Um, yeah, clearly you, you
2: did a nice dive into the book. And so thank you so much for helping us to bring this to your listeners.
1: Thanks so much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Nancy Lowe and Andrea Guerin about their new edited volume, The Rutledge Handbook of the Business of Women's Sports. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers, or from the webpage for New Books and Sports, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. Thanks for the download, and have a great month.